Okay, we're going to go ahead and begin, and we're in Micah chapter 3. Micah 3. Tonight. Micah chapter 3, and it's 12 verses, so let's read the chapter, and then we'll have our Bible study. Micah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle? Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. Instead, He will hide His face from them at that time, because they have practiced evil deeds." Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage, to make known to Jacob his rebellious acts, even to Israel his sin. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice, and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed, and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you teach us tonight, uh, Lord, to make a distinction between good and evil. Lord, to see that so many of these sins and practices that were so prevalent during the days of Micah, Lord, that these sins are common to man. Uh, Lord, in every generation, these types of things are happening. And Lord, the judgment of God uh, that you pronounced upon them will uh, come upon all those who practice such things. So Lord, may we not uh, be foolish. May we not believe lies and uh, believe delusions that we can live in sin uh, and yet escape your judgment. Instead, Lord, we pray that we would be like the prophet Micah, who was filled with power in the Spirit of Lord, of the Lord who had justice uh, in his mind and righteousness in his actions, uh, who was a man of courage and who stood against uh, the sins of his own day. So may we not take part in these things, but rather expose them, and Lord, press on until we enter into the kingdom of God. Lord, be with us tonight and teach us, Lord, from your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, Micah chapter 3, the focus of this chapter is addressing both the civil and the religious leaders uh, there in Israel uh, who are the ones chiefly responsible for the deplorable situation in which the land finds itself. Though wickedness and uh, idolatry, sin is common amongst the people, uh, the leaders of the people have a unique responsibility given to them by God to be the ones who... 
punish evil and who promote righteousness in the land, but they're not doing that. They're not doing that, neither the civic authorities nor the religious authorities, but are kind of a cabal in league together, and they are the real source of the sin and wickedness. They're instigating it so that it flows down from them down to the people, right? As the leaders go, so go the people. And this is commonly how it is in any nation. If you have wicked rulers, you're often going to have wicked people. And if you have a righteous ruler, there at least is going to be more righteousness in the land, a greater reformation in the people, and there will be a restraint in what the people do. And so we see why it is so desirable to have good leaders, because when there are these evil ones like this, then it leads to much corruption and much sin and ultimately to the judgment of God. So he begins in verses 1 to 4 addressing the civic leaders, right? The civil leaders, uh, those who are the head uh, over the people in terms of their day-to-day life. Let's begin there in verse 1. He says, And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Here he's addressing the heads of Jacob, the rulers of the house. These, again, are the authorities, those who are ruling, who are administrating, who are setting the day-to-day policies in the life of the nation that govern the lives, uh, the finances, uh, the commerce, the warfare, whatever is going on in the nation, right? The leaders are the ones who are setting the trajectory by which the people are going to to walk. They're the ones making the laws, the policies that are instituted in the land by which the people are governed. And if those laws and policies are not just and right, but are rather evil and wicked, then the result is, is it's going to cause there to be more and more evil. It's going to go from bad to worse. There'll be more corruption in the land and there will be more evil, right? The very purpose of rulers as appointed by God is to execute justice in the land. They are to promote laws and policies and punishments that restrain evil and promote good well-being and stability in society. God is the one who created government. He is the one who puts rulers in place. They are servants of God and the very purpose of their existence for them to have this office, this position from the Lord is to punish evil and reward that which is good. Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, 1 to 7, lay out here the principles for the ruling authorities and why it is that we as Christians should be subject to the governing authorities insofar as they are promoting what is consistent with the law of God and restraining that which is contrary to the law of God. Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, 
honor to whom honor. They are the authority is a servant of God, a minister of God. For what reason? Right? To punish evil and to praise what is good. They bear the sword for this very purpose, to punish evildoers and then to reward and uphold, to set forward examples of those who are good citizens, who do what is good and right. And the government should be doing both of these things. That is their purpose, to promote justice in the land. And that's why he says to them, is it not for you to know justice? You have this position, right? You have this office. The very purpose of it is to execute justice according to the will of God. In Romans 13, it says they are whose servants? They are servants of God. Well, if you are God's servant and the reason he's placed you in this position is to promote justice, then don't you need to know justice, right? Is it not for you to know justice? How can he fulfill this role if he does not know what justice is? If he doesn't know the difference between good behavior and bad behavior, between good and evil, and what are the proper punishments for those who break the law, who do crimes, who do these kinds of things? It is essential for them to fulfill their role that they have some understanding of justice. And yet here they are completely bereft of any knowledge of justice and righteousness. The ordinance of God has been established for that purpose. They have the position of authority. The rulers do. They have the prestige, the honor, the position that comes with that position, right? Because there are there is honor and glory that comes with being a ruler, right? You are the ruler of the people. You are the head of the people. It is an exalted position. They are taking for themselves those privileges, the honors of having the position, but they're failing to execute the office, right? The purpose for it, right? The ministry that they are to perform for the good of the people. So they take the privileges, yet they fail in their duties and their responsibilities before God, and they are not promoting justice, but actually are promoting injustice in the land. Psalm 58, Psalm 58, verses 1 to 2. Psalm 58, 1 to 2, a psalm addressing the same issue. Psalm 58, 1. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in heart you work in righteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. There, again, these gods who are rulers, right? They're called gods, not because they're divine, but because of the position. They are servants of God, representatives of God, who are to execute justice on behalf of God in the earth. But he says, are you doing what's good and right? You're not judging uprightly. You're not speaking in righteousness. Instead, you're working unrighteousness. You're promoting violence and dealing it out in the land. So an authority who is lacking in justice is a complete blight on society and is very obnoxious both to the people and obnoxious to God, right, in what it is that he promotes in the land. Micah chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. He says, You hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, chop them up as for the pot and as meat in the kettle. Here, their moral problem, right, the reason that they are not promoting justice is because 
they have a hatred of good and a love of evil, right? Everything is backwards. This is because they are unbelieving, they're corrupt, they're wicked, they're reprobate men. And the reprobate, the unbeliever, he does not love righteousness. He does not love truth. He doesn't love what is good. He loves unrighteousness. He loves lies. He loves that which is evil. And they have an abhorrence for everything that is good, right? Everything that is good and right. Even uh, some unbelievers will at least have some common decency to where there is some understanding of what is good and right, and they may promote some laws that produce a manner of civic righteousness in the land. But these men are completely bereft of any true knowledge or love for what is good, but instead are completely consumed with evil. So that everything that they're doing is contrary to the will of God. And this is the way it is in this current world. Everything is upside down. Everything is backwards and contrary to the to what God desires, right? We ought to love good and hate evil, but instead men love evil and hate good. And this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, 18 to 23 describes this same issue, that the judgment of men is completely skewed because of sin, right? This is the darkness of sin, being blinded by sin. They have no understanding and they're not able to discern and judge between good and evil. So that which is actually good, they think is evil. And that which is actually evil, they think is good because their mind is controlled and dominated by the flesh. And when men persist in this type of sin, they become so hardened, so callous that even that natural light, right? The law of nature, some things are self-evident and even some unbelievers see those things and understand, okay, yeah, we shouldn't do that. But there comes a time when people persist in this and they become so bad that even those things that are self-evident, laws of nature become completely darkened and everything is given over to what is contrary to everything that is good and right. Isaiah 5, 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the one who are in the right. So there... Evil they call good, good they call evil. Darkness they call light, light they call darkness. Bitter is sweet, sweet is bitter, right? This is the way they are. Their taste buds, as it were, or their sight spiritually is so askew, so averse to everything that is good and right that they have everything backwards, right? It's a complete upheaval of what is according to the law and righteousness of God. And this is seen in every generation. It's seen, of course, in our own generation as well, that there are many people in our society today who think that the right to kill babies is a good thing, that this is a sign of a very advanced, civilized, progressive society. They think it's good for people to have the right to murder babies. They think it's good 
for two men to have the right to get married and to commit acts of indecency with one another or two women to do those types of things. And they think that it is a very wonderful thing, that it shows that we are advanced, that we are sophisticated, that this is a very enlightened culture in which we live in. But it's the opposite of that. It's contrary to enlightenment. It's actually a sign of our perverseness and the depravity uh, right and the, the backwardness of everything that is going on. And then these same ones, if you askew what is true and right according to the Bible, they will mock you, they will ridicule you, they will even suppress you, uh, throw you into prison, right? They'll do those kinds of things, right? If you say what is true and consistent with the Word of God. Here in Micah chapter 3, he uses, beginning in verse 2 through the end of uh, verse 3, an image of a wild beast, right, or a ruthless shepherd uh, taking a lamb and exploiting it for his own benefit or advantage to the extent of flaying the skin off of it, right, chopping it up, putting it into the pot as meat in the kettle, right? This is what the rulers are doing to the people, right? They're treating them, they're oppressing them, they're exploiting them in such a way that it's like some wild beast tearing to pieces some innocent little lamb that cannot defend itself, and they strip it completely bare. They pick all of the meat off of the bone, and they treat it with such cruelty, with such violence, with such oppression. And this is what the leaders, the rulers, are doing to the very people that they are to govern over. Right? Many times, the rulers, right, the way that they should relate to the people is as a father to his child. Right? This is the a comparable relationship. The ruler should see himself as a father to his subjects, to those that are under his care that he is to rule over. And he should have their good in mind. He should be ruling selflessly for the advantage and the benefit of the people. But here, they're using their authority and their power not to uh, promote the welfare of the people, but instead to oppress them, to use them and exploit them for their own advantage, doing whatever they want in order to satisfy their own wicked desires. They are covetous men who want and desire more and more and more, and they exploit the very people that they are ruling over in order to build up their own estates, to build up their own kingdoms, to grow their wealth, to give themselves more comforts, more luxuries, more of these things that men so greatly desire. And this is what is happening uh, there. It is a rigor, a cruelty, an oppression that comes from these wicked rulers. And typically this comes through heavy taxes, uh, levies, fines, these types of ways that they exploit the people. And then they take and they deprive them of what is rightfully theirs in order to build up their own estate. The people live in poverty. They live mouth to mouth while the rulers are living in opulence, living in comfort, giving to themselves all of the pleasures and comforts of life, while the people are barely able to scratch out an existence because of all of the fines and levies and taxes that they impose upon them in order to rob them of their wealth and enrich themselves and satiate their own wicked desires. 1 Kings chapter 12, an example of this, even under the reign of Solomon, Solomon's 
we know that he was a, a wise man and he was a good king, a righteous man. But we also know that he was a man who had his own sins, right? And later in his life, his heart turned away from the Lord. And he also was uh, heaping expectations upon the people that were very difficult for them to bear. So that after he died and Rehoboam took over the throne, the people desired and they pleaded with Rehoboam to lessen this load that Solomon had placed upon them, to lighten it, and then that they would willingly and gladly serve him, right? Not that there shouldn't be any load. There is a load that the people ought to gladly bear and give to the ruling authorities, but it has to be within reason. It cannot be to the point of exploitation, right? And that's what was happening with Solomon, and then it is increased under Rehoboam to the point that the people have no other option but to rebel against him. 1 Kings 12, verse 1, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt. For he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father, and his heavy yoke which he put upon us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders, who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them, and grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give me that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which he spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So there, this yoke is increased, and this is similar to what is being described in Micah chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. This is ex exploitive view of the people, that they are there to satisfy all of my desires and wants. And many times you see this in kingdoms, that the rulers, they build these opulent houses, these castles, these mansions for themselves, statues to themselves, gardens for themselves. Well, where does all that money come from? How do they have the wealth, the money to do that? Who are they getting it from? They're getting it from the people, and they're doing it for their own vain glory. They're not doing it for the good of the people, but they're doing it for their own vanity and for their own pride to promote these kinds of things. That's what they're doing here to the people of Israel. Then verse 4. 
says, Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. Instead, He will hide His face from them at that time, because they have practiced evil deeds. Because of all of this sin, God is going to bring His judgment upon Israel. And when that judgment comes, these rulers and judges are going to cry out to the Lord. They're going to cry to Him for God to deliver them, for God to save them, to rescue them from their oppressors. Because what is happening, what they're doing to the people, it's going to come back upon them. God will give to them as they have done. They're going to have a foreign nation come upon them who are stronger than them, mightier than them, who have more authority, greater armies than them. Right? This is how they exploit the people. They use their authority and their might given to them by virtue of their position, and they use that to exploit the people. Well, a greater nation is going to come upon them with a greater military and greater might and greater authority. And they're going to do to them the same that they've been doing to the people. And when they do that, these rulers and judges are going to cry out to God and ask God to deliver them. Save us from our oppressors. But what will God do? Will He answer them on that day? No. He's not going to answer them. He will not deliver them. He's going to give them over. And as they have done, so it shall be done to them. He will hide His face from them because they have practiced evil deeds. Right During the days of prosperity, they did not cry out to God. They did not seek His face. They were not consulting the will of the Lord when it came to determining the laws and the justice and the way by which they ruled over the people. Then they did what was right in their own eyes. But now when they come into this time of oppression, of hardship and sorrow, now they want God to come and deliver them. They want God to hear them and to answer them, but God will not do so. He will not answer them at any time during that case. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, and this is the way people commonly are, and this is why God has to discipline His children with hardships and sorrows and afflictions. Because during prosperity and comfort, we become vainly secure, we become presumptuous, and we quit depending upon the Lord. And He must discipline us with afflictions in order to keep us humble so that we will cry out to God for, for help. And that is a grace that God shows to us. He doesn't show that to the wicked, right? He does that for His children, but not for the wicked. He gives them comfort and ease all throughout their life. And then when they cry out to Him, He will not answer. Proverbs 1, verse 24 says, Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. You neglected all my counsel, did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes, when your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not keep my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. There, they won't listen to wisdom. They won't pay attention. So when the calamity comes, the day of judgment comes, they're going to cry out for salvation, for deliverance, but there will be none then because the day of salvation has passed. And this is how it is here in Micah chapter 3. All right, now verse 5. In verse 5, he begins addressing the prophets. The prophets, the religious leaders, those who were charged with teaching the people the Word of God. 
verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Now here again, the prophets are addressed. And these two offices, the civil and the religious authorities, they often go hand in hand. They work together hand in hand in what they're doing in the society or throughout the land. Right? The prophets give God's blessing to the authorities. Not in a true sense, but they pronounce it upon them. They tell them that everything's going to go well with them, that God is going to bless them, that God is on their side, God is going to help them. So they give God's sanctioning and God's blessing upon their evil deeds, the evil deeds of the authorities. And they encourage them and embolden them to commit their acts of wickedness throughout all the land. So that's what they do for the authorities. And then the authorities give to them wealth. They give them honor. They give them food. They give them comforts. They give them prestige. They give them access to, to things that they desire and that they want because men are prone to this type of vanity. So this is how they work in correlation together. And this is the same as in the book of Revelation. It talks about the beast and it talks about the false prophet. There are these two beasts in Revelation. The one is the civil authorities. The other, the false prophet, is the religious authorities. And these two things are often working together hand in hand. And who is the master of both of them? Well, Christ is the ultimate master, but in terms of who's directing and guiding the beast and what he's doing, and who's directing and guiding the false prophet in terms of their spiritual origin, they are following the devil. They're following the devil and they're promoting the devil's work in the land. Evil and wickedness all throughout society. And here are the false prophets. They're not prophesying what is true, but what is false. So these two sources of authority, the civic authority, the religious authority, they often go hand in hand. And in many societies, and even in American society, for for many, many years, there was much overlap between these two groups, the civic and the religious authorities. So as one goes, so goes the other. And they are working hand in hand in this way. Well, here he says the prophets are leading the people astray. They're leading them astray. Now, the prophets are teachers, and teachers are shepherds. And shepherds ought to lead people in the right way. They should lead them in the good path, to green pasture, to still water. They ought to lead them in the way of the Lord. But instead of leading them in the way of the Lord, they're leading the people astray, turning them away from the will of God to the will of Satan to go and to commit sin. Then he says, When... They have something to bite with their teeth. They cry peace. If someone is putting food in their mouth, if someone is giving to them money, giving them food, is a source of income, of benefit to them, then they will pronounce peace to that person and say, all is well with you. God loves you, right? You will be blessed. You're going to be successful. You're going to have a wonderful life. You will have a life of prosperity and goodness and blessing from the Lord. They will do this if someone puts food in their mouth. But against the one who puts nothing in their mouth, they declare holy war. Those who do not benefit them and profit them, they are the ones that they are against. They declare holy war against them. Now, is there a place for a true prophet to rightly proclaim peace? Yes, there is. And is there a place for a true prophet 
to rightly declare holy war. Yes, both of those are functions of what a holy, a true prophet should do. But what should be the basis of his pronouncement of peace on the one and his pronouncement of holy war on the other? It ought to be based upon faith and then the evidences of faith, which are the fruits of the saints, the righteousness, the godliness. And if there is one with true faith who is manifesting his true faith by his good deeds, then the peace of God is on that man. And it should not be based upon whether that man gives him money, puts something in his mouth. It ought to be based impartially upon the character of the man, the life of the man, the spirituality of the man. And then the one who has no faith, who's living a godless and a wicked life, he should declare holy war against him. He should say that God is not with you, that God's wrath abides on you. You must repent of your sin regardless of whether or not that man is wealthy, whether that man is able to make him rich, to give him money, to put food in his mouth. But here, they're exercising their authority, this position of profit, not based upon impartiality and not based upon the Word of God, not based upon the spirituality of men, but based on who can give them money and who can give them food. Who can help them and benefit them? And they favor those who promote their well-being, and they're against those who do nothing for them. And that is called a prophet for hire, right? They're a false prophet, a prophet for hire, who only does these things for what they get out of it. And that is a very wicked and a worthless man. So, it has nothing to do with the spiritual state, with the faith or the lack thereof, whether one is godly or wicked, but only based upon who is willing to put something in their mouth. Verse 6 and 7, Therefore, it will be night for you without vision, and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed, and their diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. Here, what good is a prophet who sees no visions? What good is a prophet who has no word from the Lord? Right? What good is it uh, when his every prophecy is exposed and overturned by God? Well, he's a worthless prophet. He's of no benefit or no value at all. He doesn't have a word from God. He doesn't see a vision from the Lord. Everything he says, the exact opposite is what happens. How is he a source of value and benefit to the people? Only if you do the opposite of what he tells you. That's the only way that he can be of any source or help to them. And what they are spiritually, which is dark, they are in darkness. Spiritually, they are dark, but they say they have a word from God. They say, God has spoken to me. Thus says the Lord. They claim to have light and knowledge and understanding, and that if we will listen to them, they will tell us how to live a life pleasing to God, how to have the favor and blessing of God upon us. They claim this, but actually they are full of darkness. So what is true of them in reality and spiritually is what God will manifest outwardly in their station and in their situation. It will be darkness for them. Affliction, punishment, judgment is going to come upon them, and this is what they're going to have. God's going to expose them as the frauds that they are. They will no longer be in comfort. They will no longer 
have food in their mouth, but instead they will have affliction. They will be exposed as the frauds they are because the peace, the safety, the deliverance, they promise to the people. That's what they do. When things are beginning to unravel and the judgment of God is beginning to be poured out upon the people, they come to them and assure them, no, 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 this isn't the judgment of God. It's all going to go well with us. God, He loves us. We are His people. We are safe. We have nothing to fear. Even when the Assyrians are pouring into their nation, surrounding their city, God's going to deliver us, right? Everything will be okay with us. We have nothing to fear. And they give people vain hope, right? Vain security that isn't based upon truth and reality. It's based upon lies. Well, all of these things are going to be exposed. And that's why he says they're going to be ashamed. They're going to be embarrassed. They're going to cover their mouths. Because eventually it's going to become obvious to everyone that this guy is a big fraud. He's, he lied to me, right? He was telling me everything was going to be all right. And now my wife and children are being drugged off to Assyria and I'm about to be put to death. But this guy told me everything was going to be fine. They're going to be exposed for what they truly are. It will be clear that these men never spoke from God. God was not with them. They are liars who deceived the people. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, 21 and 22. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 21. says, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from their evil deeds. Here, Jeremiah is saying, or the Lord's speaking through Jeremiah, these prophets, I didn't send them, but they're running. They're running to and fro saying, the Lord has sent me. He didn't speak to them, but they're going around telling everyone that God has spoken to me. God has told me His will, and now I'm going to reveal it to you. They're not doing that at all. If they had stood in His counsel, then they would have turned people away from their evil deeds. They would have preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins to the people. Keep your place there in Jeremiah 23, because we'll come back to that in verse 8. The contrast, Micah 3 verse 8. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act and even to Israel his sin. Here the contrast is seen between Micah and the false prophets. He says, they run, but God did not send them. They speak, but God did not give them a word. They tell people peace, safety, and prosperity even while they're living in sin. They have no power. The Spirit of God is not with them. They have no justice, no courage. They're not calling people to repent. But what about Micah? He says, on the other hand, I'm filled with power. And who is the source of Micah's power? It is the Lord Himself. The Lord is filling him with power. He has the Spirit of the Lord with him. It is the Spirit of the Lord in the prophets that caused them to prophesy the true words of God. He has justice and courage. He knows the difference between good and evil. And he's preaching the difference between good and evil. He's preaching the judgment of God against evil. And he's preaching the rewards of God, the blessings of God for those who do his will. And he has courage. He has courage. 
the false prophets have no courage, but they just tell people what they want. They tell people what's going to make them happy. And everyone loves to be the bearer of good news, but it's when you have to tell people hard things, difficult things, things that you know that they're not going to want to hear because many people don't want to hear that they're living in sin. They don't want to hear that the judgment of God is upon them, that they need to repent of their sin. That's why he has to have courage. He cannot fear the people. They're going to look at him, scowl at him, throw stuff at him, say all sorts of horrible things against him, maybe even put him to death because of what he is saying. But he has to have courage to speak the word of God. And what is this word? Making known his rebellious acts and his sin. Showing them all of the ways in their life, in their society, in their culture, all of these things are contrary to the will of God. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the world. And you must repent of these things and escape the coming judgment of God. Back to Jeremiah 23, verse 25. It says, I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood? even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock. There, the ministry of the prophet in contrast to the ministry of the prof the false prophet the words of the prophet in contrast to the words of the false prophet like the difference between straw and grain it is like a rock a hammer that shatters rocks to pieces verse 9 now hear this heads of the house of jacob and rulers of the house of israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight who builds Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Here, this is a sad characteristic to be true of rulers, abhorring justice and twisting everything that is straight. Right? Whenever you have rulers who hate justice and who twist everything, it's going to be a miserable society, a miserable place to live, to raise your family, to try to live a godly life, to try to have a business, to try to do anything that is good and right. It's going to be impossible to do. And then in verse 10, they build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Right? Jerusalem being the capital city. In this city is being built by violence and bloodshed, by injustice, by inequity. They build up the city. And again, many times the rulers and the ruling class, where do they all live at? They all live in the city. They live in the capital. They live in Jerusalem. And they want it to have stately buildings, fine houses, all of the comforts that, you know, whatever they can afford. They want all of those things. And so they build up the city and they adorn it with all of this wealth and prosperity and give all these things, but they're doing it through violence and through bloodshed. 
by exploiting and taking advantage of the people, right? Because the common man, he can't build up his house. He can't make upgrades and uh, additions to his house in order to provide comforts for his family, the raising of his family, because his estate is being deprived because all of the wealth is flowing where? It all goes to Jerusalem. It goes to the capital city. They're taking a and concentrating all of the wealth in this one city to build it up, and then they leave everyone else in this impoverished state. So the rulers can have fine houses and all of the comforts that life can afford. And again, this is not unique to their own day. This is common. If you look throughout history, these capital cities of great empires are often very lavish, right? The buildings, the uh, decorations, the things that they have, the comforts, and that's because this is where all the rich people live uh, commonly, even in our own day. I don't want to get too far off base here. However, in America today, <clears throat> did you know nine of the 20 richest counties in America, okay, so counties, nine of the 20 richest counties in the U.S. are suburbs of what city? What city would you imagine would there be such a concentration of wealth? Is it New York City? Would it be Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco? Oh no, you'd be wrong on all accounts. Which city is it? It's Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. And what great businesses are there, right? What are they producing there? What factories? What are the, all the innovations and things that they're producing in Washington, D.C. that's bringing all that wealth there? Is that where Apple headquarters is? No, no, none of those things are true. It's in China. But what is there in Washington, D.C.? The government, right? The government. That's where all the money is going. How is it that half of the richest counties in the United States of America all surround one city, the capital city, where the average income is higher than anyone else in the rest of the whole country? Where is all the money coming from to give that kind of wealth to those people. Well, it's coming from you and from me and from everyone else in the rest of the country who are being impoverished, right? Who are losing their own resources so that these people can live a very opulent life, right? This type of, uh, of life that they desire. And it's not good. That's what's happening here as well. This is what he means when they're flaying the people. They're skinning them alive. They're boiling them in a pot. They're building up Jerusalem. They're doing all of these things that are common to man. Right? This is what has happened generation after generation after generation. They take and they exploit people in order to build up their own petty kingdoms and petty empires. And when God sees it, it is abhorrent to him. And then verse 11. They, the leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for money. Now, in these three descriptions, leaders, priests, and prophets, these are three different offices, yet all of them here have one thing in common, right? And what is the source of their corruption? Why are they doing the evil things that they're doing? What's the common denominator? Money, right? The love of money. They are covetous people, they have a love and a desire for money. So the leaders will pronounce judgment for a bribe. If someone gives them money, then they're going to make a judgment in their favor. The priests are going to instruct people, but only if they give them money. Right? The prophets are going to prophesy, but for the love of 
money. Not for love of God, not for love of neighbor, but love of money. And we remember that it is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Their desire for money, it is covetousness that is driving them in what they are doing. Yet, verse 11, they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Though everything about them, the way that they're living, all of their sins and wickedness, everything is shouting and screaming to them that those who do such things deserve to die. The judgment of God is upon you. The wrath of God abides on you. What are they fully convinced of? Everything's going to be fine. We have nothing to worry about. They even lean on the Lord. And they say, God is in our midst. Is not the Lord in our midst? They're looking to the temple, the temple, which is the dwelling place of God, symbolically there amongst the people of Israel. And they take comfort in the temple that God is among them. And because God is in their midst, nothing can happen to them. They are invincible. They are untouchable. And no foreign power can overthrow them. They will exist and they will be there forever because we have the temple of the Lord. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. We can live however we want and we will not face any judgment from God. This is the way that they are thinking. But this security is a vain security. They want the favor of God. They want the guarantee of God's blessing. But they want it without faith and without godliness, without doing the will of the Lord. They want to live according to their own pleasures and according to sin, and yet still have an assurance that God is with them and that God will bless them and everything will be good and fine with them and their children and that they have nothing to worry about. Live in sin and then be guaranteed that when we die, we're all going to go to heaven. I remember Thomas Watson say the, what all men want is they want to live like the devil and die like a saint. Live like the devil and die like an angel. That's what he said. Live like the devil. And then when they die, they want to be guaranteed that they're going to go to heaven. This is the delusion that exists in every false religion and in every false form of Christianity. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7 verses 1 to 11 Jeremiah 7, verse 1, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all of you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed the innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. There, it's the same thing. The temple of the Lord. They do all of these wicked things. Steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, 
offer sacrifices to Baal. It's like almost all the Ten Commandments are listed there. This is what they're doing, commonly practicing these sins. Then they come into the temple and say, we're delivered. Everything's going to be fine. And then they go out and they just keep committing these abominations. They have no desire to do the will of God. They just want some assurances that God's blessing is going to be on them and that everything is going to be all right. And this is what the false prophets will say to them if you put something in their mouth or you give them money. They will say, yes, it will be peace, prosperity, blessing. And again, these are common in every generation. And the same thing is true today as well. This is what is common in much of Christianity, right? That people want, think, so long as they have some association with the things of God, with the church, with Christ, it guarantees them a spot in heaven. That's what they want, a one-way ticket to heaven that they can punch whenever they choose, whenever they please. And so long as they did that, when they were five or six, seven, eight, 15, whatever, then they can go and live however they want the rest of their life. But they know that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. Because when I was a kid, I went to VBS, I became a Christian, I was baptized, I'm a member of the church, and I have nothing to worry about. And people, there are people who have this type of security. It is vain security who are living no differently than what Jeremiah is describing in Jeremiah chapter 7. Lying, stealing, committing adultery, fornicating, idolatry, doing whatever they want, living however they please. But then they are 100% convinced that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. And actually, when they do die, they'll probably have a service at a church and the pastor will get up and say that they're in heaven right now. Yep. Because when they were kids, they became a Christian at VBS. Even if they got blown up in a meth lab, it doesn't matter. That's not a... <laughs> that actually happened. <laughs> so anyway, verse 12. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. So because of all of this, on account of you, this is what's going to happen. Zion, the city that you're building up with your bloodshed and violence, it will be like a plowed field. It's going to be completely torn to the ground, right? There's going to be no buildings left. There's going to be no structures there. It's going to be like a desolate place. Jerusalem, a heap of ruins. The mountain of the temple, a high place of a forest. Trees will be growing there. There'll be no people It'll be completely ruined and destroyed. God's going to wipe it out. Judgment is coming upon them because of all of their sins. So, this is the word of the Lord from Micah to them, to us as well. Right. To us as well. So we must see and understand that if we live the way they lived, then the same things will come upon us. Right? It'll happen to us as well, just as surely, because God is not unjust, right? It's not, God will not do this to them, but then let us scathe by free and there be no punishment or judgment for us. So we have to repent of our sins. Repent of our sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then seek to live a godly life, a godly life, walk in the ways of the Lord.